Hello, everyone. This is Shannon Waller here, and thank you very much for joining me for our next author interview for the Team Success website. And I am really excited today because I have someone on the line with me today, Dr. Bob Moore, who wrote a book that has been fundamental to my thinking about how to make effective change. And since really great teamwork has to do with how you handle change and how you deal with it, whether you embrace it, how you embrace it, how you're effective with it, this book and this thinking for me has, again, been absolutely crucial and vital to my success. So I use it a lot. I recommend this book constantly, and I am more than delighted to have Bob on the phone. So, Bob, thank you very much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Great. So just before we jump into the conversation, because I have a bunch of questions I'm going to ask, let me introduce you to a little bit of Bob's background. So Bob is an associate clinical professor at the UCLA School of Medicine, and we're going to hear a few stories about that, as well as at the University of Washington. He's also a behavioral health instructor at the Canyon Ranch Health Spa in Tucson, Arizona, and runs the Science of Excellence, a consulting firm. So he is a very busy guy. He's about to commute out after this call, as a matter of fact. And Bob, I really appreciate you taking this next 60 minutes to talk with us because in our previous conversation and from reading what it is that you've written, you have such a practical way of approaching something that most of us really struggle with. So I'm excited to share that with everyone who's listening today. Thank you. You're welcome. So the title of the book that I recommend all the time, the one that Bob wrote, is called One Small Step Can Change Your Life, The Kaizen Way. So it has to do with making changes. And one of the key things in the book is a distinction, Bob, that you make about how people make changes. So can you elaborate on the two ways? Because I think most of us are familiar with making big sweeping changes, but a lot of times you're recommending that what we do is actually something radically different. So can you tell us what that is? Sure. Just to give you a little preamble, the way that I came across this idea of there being more than one strategy for change was a research project that I was leading at UCLA for about 15 years where we were collecting studies from around the world on people who were succeeding in their work, their health, and relationships, whereas almost the entire success research focuses just on your health or your relationship or your work. There were about over two dozen studies that had followed people anywhere from 15 to 70 years Wow. See, what allowed people to sustain their excellence in all three areas? And one of the things we found is that these people had two strategies for change, whereas most of us had one. And so the strategy that we are all most familiar with living in a Western culture goes by the name of innovation, which we define as taking the largest possible steps to accomplish a large goal. Mm -hmm. And, of course, innovation is good. If I ask you to list all the things you want for yourself, your family, your organization – why would you wait one minute longer than necessary to accomplish it? If you can take big steps and accomplish big goals, that's all the better. But as everyone has lived long enough to discover, sometimes those big steps lead to big falls. And sometimes the price of that fall is more than we ever bargained to pay. Mm-hmm. So we found successful people would consider a second strategy, which goes by the name of Kaizen. Now, Kaizen has two definitions, but the one that we're most interested in in terms of change is making very, very small steps to accomplish a large goal. So innovation, the largest possible steps to accomplish a goal. Kaizen, the smallest, most trivial steps to get to that same destination. And what's so striking, so contradictory to common sense and common belief is that it's hard to believe these small steps can get you to the same destination, sometimes even faster 
then the big steps will. Well, and I love that. I love the fact that, you know, it doesn't have to be this big thing you have to gear up to do, like completely change your diet, go through your cupboards, throw out every piece of sugar, you know, if you want to be healthier. You know, I love the fact that there's small steps you can take. But as you said, sometimes it does feel trivial. So why do small steps sometimes work far more effectively than big steps? What's the mechanism at work there? Well, what can happen and often does happen when people decide they want to make a big change like the examples you gave, someone decides they want to lose all the weight as soon as possible. They want to find the person of their dreams and be married by the end of the year. They want to get rich and have a breakthrough product or service yesterday. The bigger the steps, the more it triggers a place in the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is a, a very small, about the size of an almond, part of the midbrain, and it deals with the most powerful and basic emotion of the brain, and that's fear. And what happens when you decide you want to take a big step is the amygdala wakes up. And so sometimes it wakes up in the form of we become frightened. So you decide you want to lose weight. You walk into the fanciest health club in your city. You see all these magnificent people who made that decision years and years ago and have these wonderful bodies. And you may become just inspired that, gee, enough effort, I'm going to look like that. But more often people look at it and get scared thinking, my God, I'll never look like that. It's never going to work. I can't do it. And they walk out the gym and go get a pizza. So the bigger the steps you want to take, the more likely it is it's going to trigger fear. And fear usually doesn't motivate people. Usually it shuts them down. See, I think that's a really powerful point that it shuts you down because I've been, I'm fascinated by brain stuff and have done very much the layman's version of reading about it. But one of the things I learned from Dr. Eric Cobb from Z Health, also in Arizona, is that his research about the brain, you know, the brain's really incredibly astute at two things, at perceiving threats and predicting threats. And when it's like that, it will shut you down. And he works a lot of movement. And even though your injury, may you may be technically recovered, your body still will not let you go there because your brain thinks it's not safe. So this whole thing about keeping something, your small step below the level at which it triggers the amygdala. And I love how you talk about in the book, you say tiptoe past the fear response, which I, yeah, I have a great picture of that in my head. To me, it's like it comes up to play in so many things, be it recovering from, you know, physical injury or losing weight or relationships or work habits. And I think a lot of us have tried, as you said, those big things. We've had some big failures and then you don't want to try again. Right. So this to me is kind of like a secret formula, which I find right. <laughs> really exciting. Yes, exactly. The other aspect is if you can keep the amygdala quiet, then the brain becomes a creature of habit. Mm-hmm. You know, if you watch a TV show, they show you the same commercial often 15 to 30 seconds over and over and over again. The reason they're doing that is they know that anything you do repetitively develops pathways in the brain. So you're better off doing something one minute a day every day than you are doing something an hour once a week because what the brain does every day, it commits cells to. Mm. So if you're trying to build a new habit and you can quiet the amygdala, then the brain starts to lock in these new behaviors. So before we go any further, what's an example of what that looks like? What's an example of where someone did something so small you thought anyone from the outside looking at me going, you've got to be crazy. That's never going to work, but it really did. What's a practical example for people so they can really get it? Let me give you one from health and one from work. Great. The health one is that often I see people who um, have very busy lives. 
that they're up early in the morning, sometimes taking care of children. They go off and work an 8, 10, sometimes 12-hour day and come home to responsibilities. And to ask that person to go to the gym in the middle of the day is absurd. They'll give you 10 reasons why they can't do it. And they're all good reasons. But one of the most amazing studies that we've repeated but uh, was originally done in Pittsburgh and then in Ireland, they went into a huge high-rise building. They went to, say, the fifth floor, found a banking firm, identified a dozen people that hadn't exercised since high school. And they said, congratulations, Christmas has come early in your life. You have a lifetime gift certificate to that fancy health club in the building. Here's a gift certificate for one hour, an hour a week for your trainer for a year. And here's a gift certificate for a new set of workout clothes. Here's the Heart Association recommendations. Have a great life. They go to the 12th floor of that same building. Say it's a 40-story building. They identify a different firm, another dozen people that haven't exercised since high school. All they ask them to do on Monday is go into the stairwell, go up one flight of stairs, back to their floor, back to their desk, back to work. Tuesday, go into the same stairwell, go up one flight at a single step, back to your floor, back to your desk, back to work. Wednesday, again, one flight, now three steps. Get the idea, every day of the work week, adding one step to this ridiculous regimen. But come back one year, three years, five years later, which group do you think is exercising better? With better cardiovascular fitness, lower cholesterol, lower weight? The people with the health club or the steppers? And, of course, the answer, of course, is the steppers. They had no resistance because the workout was so small and trivial so that there was never any excuse not to do it. And because it was so small, the brain developed the habit. After a while, they'd miss it if they didn't do it. And, of course, if you're building up one step a day, by the end of the year, you've got quite an exercise routine. So that's an example of how you can use very small movements on a regular basis to develop a habit of exercise. I love it. Another story is more personal, and that is I was at Canyon Ranch, and a man came up to me and said, I need to tell you how I've used Kaizen. He's an orthopedic surgeon in Phoenix, Arizona, and he'd heard the talk on Kaizen a year ago, went back to his practice, he sat down with his nurse and his front office people and explained Kaizen. And a year later, he said that we added up how many changes we'd made in our small practice, and there were over 200. I said, can you give me an example? He said, sure. My receptionist hated her job because I frequently run late. A person rushes in to make sure they got to my office on time, and she has the job of saying to them, gee, the doctor is running 45 minutes late. They scowl, they pout, they sit in a chair reading a three-week-old magazine, and that was her daily life. But once she heard about Kaizen and had permission now to be thinking in trivial, small ways what she could do to improve the practice, she had this idea come into her mind that everybody's got cell phones. So if I'm running 45 minutes late, she'll call a patient, say, look, I know you had a 3 o'clock appointment. The doctor really won't be able to see you before 3.45. Why don't you come then? The person walked in the door with a smile on their face because this reception had given them back 45 minutes of their life, and they were grateful. They made her life easier. It didn't cost the doctor anything, and the patients were more pleased. So if you can train your staff to think small, as we may talk about later, you don't know which of these small steps is going to turn out to be big. That is fantastic, and I really love that example because customer service is ripe for this. (laughs) In my estimation. But one of the things we talk about with our clients a lot is going 10 times. 
And our analogy for that is it can be a lot like looking at the sun, really bright and shiny, but also blinding. And so how do you possibly grow 10 times? And what you've just said is you can do it by one small thing at a time. And 200 changes over the course of a year in a practice, that's a lot. Yes. That you can fundamentally change a lot of things and transform people's experience in far fewer than that, I'm sure. So that, I love love both of those examples. Those are awesome. So this is one of the things that I, I was curious about. Again, I love the stories and I love the examples. So... What's one or two more in terms of, so we talked about health, how people used it to improve their relationships? That's in some ways one of the most exciting. And for this, we borrowed some of the research of a man named John Gottman. Gottman is also at the University of Washington, or was for 20 years, and is a researcher who's done probably the best research on marriage. What makes his work so extraordinary, Shannon, is he could sit down with you and a fiancé, do a 15-minute interview or less, predict the likelihood you'll be happily married four years later versus miserable or divorced with 93% accuracy. Wow. Quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Basically, he found two things. One was how couples deal with conflict. Not surprising. (laughs) Some of the things he found were common sense, and some of them were not common at all. But the second thing he found that was even more predictive was that on a daily basis, the positive attention outweighed negative by 5 to 1 on the days when the relationship wasn't going well, 20 to 1 on the days when it was thriving. Now, what are we talking about? 20 candlelight dinners, 20 trips to the movies, 20 walks on the beach? Absurd. You couldn't physically accomplish it. It turns out to be small, trivial moments. When you call your mate during the day, does their voice light up when they realize it's you? Or does their voice tone imply that you're interrupting their more important tasks? Did they put down the remote control of the newspaper or the telephone when you walk through the door? If you went to the dentist this morning, did they remember to ask you about it? Those small, trivial moments accumulating throughout the day were more predictive of success than anything else the couple could do. So in our couple's work, these are the things we make sure before anybody completes a course of counseling that they've mastered because there's nothing that you can do that will ensure the success of the relationship more than that. That's amazing. And I imagine that works really well with children yes. as well. I mean, how powerful for kids because it's, it's paying attention, really. Exactly. And it doesn't take much other than, as you said, putting down the remote of the newspaper. Exactly. Also, we found the research applies in, in the work setting as well. Many of us have had the experience of have a boss walk by us and not even make eye contact. Mm-hmm. We're hoping it's just because they're preoccupied with some other issue and not because they're getting ready to criticize us. <laughs> Having a supervisor remember you were on vacation and ask you how it went or ask you about your child or your spouse with their first name, those kind of small things can really build loyalty and teamwork. Mm-hmm. To me, that seems so simple and so easy. I'm smiling as you're talking. It's like, oh, yes, I could do that better. Or sometimes I'm thinking, oh, I wish someone else would do that better, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so this is why I'm such a fan of the book. So that's really interesting. Now, I'm going to switch tracks for just a moment because I think when people hear about Kaizen, at least I tend to think of Japanese companies, and I tend to think of it in a very other side of the world context. So can you explain how that connection works? And I love how we brought it back to this way of thinking, but also I know people are familiar with it from a different context. So you're asking me about the history of it? Yeah. How it got started? Well, we believe it's an ancient Asian philosophy. You know, that old saying, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Mm-hmm. But we've not been able to uncover any evidence that it's been used systematically in any Asian culture although the Asian cultures have an emphasis on small 
context. For example, the bonsai trees or the cloisonne, these tiny, tiny steps to build something beautiful. But we don't think it was used systematically until the beginning of World War II, when, as you know, the United States, Canada entered the war very suddenly, and all of a sudden they had to begin ramping up to build high-quality military equipment. There was very little human resource because they were all off being trained as soldiers. There was almost no money. So a man named Edward Deming and his colleagues began training people all around the country who were working in these factories to look for very, very small ways that they could improve the process or the product. And much to their surprise, these small, small, small incremental steps led to the highest quality military equipment. They called it training within industries. Well, after World War II, we were the only industrial giant standing. People were buying our cars and our refrigerators, no matter how we built them. But the Japanese had been impressed, obviously, with our military equipment, and they invited Dr. Deming and others over to teach them how to use this. And firms like Toyota, Honda, Fuji embraced this idea for two reasons. One, that idea of small steps was very compatible with their culture, and, of course, they were building out of rubble, And so small steps were all they could do. And again, out of these small incremental steps, they built some of the highest quality products in the world. Toyota calls Kaizen their soul. Mm. They they took it and gave it their name. If you don't mind, I'd like to jump in and talk about Toyota for a minute. Sure. Because Toyota is really the poster child for Kaizen. There's not a company in the world more associated with it than Toyota. And yet your listeners may be having a skeptical thought, and deservedly so, because Toyota had over 20 million recalls and some very well-deserved bad publicity. So if your listeners are thinking, you know, if this is such a good idea, how did Toyota make such a mess of things? Well, the information we have, starting in 2002, is the people that took over as the new management of Toyota said it's not enough that we're building the highest quality cars in the world. It's not enough that we're building the most profitable cars in the world. They had $25 billion in their savings account at that point. We now want to be the biggest car company in the world. And they began breaking ground on 14 factories around the world simultaneously without the engineering support or the suppliers being trained in Kaizen. And all of a sudden, within the next three, four, five years, they started having all kinds of quality problems. So in some ways, Toyota remains the poster child for Kaizen because When they embraced it, it helped them become extraordinary. They reached a point where Consumer Reports magazine didn't even test the cars. They just automatically recommended them. Mm. And when they abandoned Kaizen beginning around 2002, 2003, is when they got themselves in trouble. So that really is the proof in the pudding then. So when they lost the plot, they kind of proves that Kaizen works or, or doesn't work. Well, it works. Exactly. And if you don't use it, it really was dysfunctional for them. Sure. I just want to take this, I mean, I love the business example. And one of the things, as you know, I am super passionate about is teamwork, especially entrepreneurial teamwork. And one of the things I find so fascinating is that, as I said at the beginning, entrepreneurs love big innovations and the small trivial things often feel painful to go and do. But I really see a ton of applications for how small entrepreneurial companies can have a really big impact. In fact, they already are, and it probably is because, and oftentimes they're smaller, and they can have better communication. So I can definitely elaborate on this, but what are some of your thoughts about how really effective companies, other than just the big ones, but small companies, can effectively use Kaizen? Well, that's a great question, and the answer essentially goes back to something I said at the beginning, and that is that 
there's really two definitions for Kaizen. The one we've been focusing on is making very small steps to accomplish large goals. Mm-hmm. But there's a second definition, and that's looking at very small, trivial moments to create large products. Let me give you a list of companies that essentially were birthed by Kaizen, and I'll let you decide which of these you want me to talk about. The Internet, Disneyland, credit cards, Post-it, Band-Aids, Baby Powder, Netflix, Barcodes, Viagra, Penicillin, the Microwave, Frozen Foods. All of those were developed by somebody looking at some tiny, tiny moment and out of it deciding maybe there's something here worth a second look. Do you want me to go through a few of those just for your listeners' curiosity? Yes, because I really can't choose. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll just choose some of my favorites. Okay, perfect. We got Disneyland for Walt Disney taking his two young daughters to an amusement park. He puts them on the ride, sits on the bench, collects them, puts them on the second ride, sits on the second bench, collects them. By the third ride and the third bench, feeling kind of bored, Disney looked around at the other adults on the other benches who looked bored, and he thought to himself, there must be a way for a family to share an amusement park, and Disneyland was invented on that third bench. Mm. We got the credit card from two New York attorneys who were out to dinner. They were arguing over who was going to pay the check until they both realized they didn't have any money with them. <laughs> well, one of them lived a few blocks away, called his wife, who rushed down with some cash, On the walk back to the apartment, the two businessmen were reliving that moment's embarrassment and thought there had to be a way to deal with restaurant charges that was easier, and the credit card, Diners Club, our first credit card, was invented that night. We got Netflix, which just surpassed HBO with the largest number of subscribers from a person who is a big blockbuster fan, a big store that sold videos. He forgot that he had it, took it back late, and got a $43 late charge and thought there has to be a better way to deal with renting films and created Netflix. Barcodes, which have revolutionized almost every business, from somebody trying to help grocery stores with their checkout process, thought there had to be a way to speed it up. Could not figure out what to do. One day, feeling very sorry for himself, he went off to the beach, staring at the waves, sticking his hand in the sand in frustration, took his hand out of the sand, and saw the sand sticking to the grooves on his fingers, and thought that's it, and barcodes were invented that day. We got Viagra from a cardiac drug that didn't work, but somebody noticed a very interesting side effect. I was hoping you'd find that funny. I've heard that. <laughs> we got the microwave from somebody working for a company called Raytheon, had a chocolate bar in his pocket, and he was at a military installation where there was a radar screen, and the chocolate bar started to get a little soft. He got curious what that was about. So I can give you countless more examples. What we found is often these big, big interventions came from somebody looking at some small, trivial moment thinking, what can I learn from this? That to me is so powerful because it's very, I guess, egalitarian is probably the word. And any single person, by paying attention to the small things, can have an impact as opposed to it being someone else's responsibility, which I find really exciting. Pausing with the Viagra example is I heard that with that cardiac medicine, when they tried to recall the test, people would not give the medicine back. (laughs) (laughs) That piece I hadn't heard before. That's great. (laughs) That was part of the story that I'd heard, which makes me completely crack up. So it's, again, to me, why this is so exciting is because to my mind, it just opens up whole new worlds and possibilities that weren't there before when I'm only focused on big changes. And I think for a lot of team members who are primary audience for the Team Success Handbook, but also entrepreneurs who run companies who really want to have 
a big impact. I mean, the whole focus of the coach program is about maximizing results and minimizing the time and effort. So you can see why this fits so well into my, my way of thinking. So what have you noticed with, if you look at individuals, particularly people who work for smaller companies, one of my favorite examples from the book is the one about the outpatient clinic who had a terrible customer service reputation. Could you tell that story? That one of the things we found over and over again is that when we looked at customer service, one of the things that was a surprise to us, it was often some small moment, somebody that was having a too long a conversation with the person next to them rather than focusing on the person, not calling the person by their name, not keeping eye contact. And what we found is that if we could teach people to take these very small moments and decide that you don't know which small moment is the most important to that customer, that teaching people how critical these small, trivial moments could be, that we could dramatically improve customer service and cost absolutely nothing. And we found this over and over again. If you think about it, what makes companies stand out often is the quality of their service. Amazon wasn't the first company to sell books on the Internet. They just did it more efficiently than anybody else. Zappos, the shoe mm-hmm. company, isn't selling any product that's unique. It's just the quality of the way they go about it mm-hmm. that makes people loyal. I'm a huge fan. That's what's so impressive. It's that paying attention to those small things. One of the things I thought was just genius about the book was how you talk about three different things. I want to drill into each one of them because I think sure. people get even more of a sense of it. You talk about small questions, small thoughts, which is mind sculpting, and small actions, and small problems. We're a big fan of questions. I mean, our coach program is really all about asking questions versus giving answers. But what are some examples of small questions and why are they so impactful? The idea of the small questions actually came from Deming. Because again, when Deming came over to work with Toyota, they were literally building out of rubble. So asking these people to think big was ridiculous. So what he did, and we now still believe to be true, is in some ways the brain, of course, is just like a computer which isn't surprising, the brain invented it. But in some ways, the brain and the computer are very different. For example, if you sit down at the computer in front of you and try to print out the lottery ticket, you're not going to have any luck because your computer doesn't have the software hardware for it. It'll just say error and give you that funny ding. The human brain isn't that smart. Any question you ask repeatedly, the brain is compelled to pay attention to. The way I demonstrate this, if I'm doing, say, a five-day program in a hotel is I say to people on Monday, how many of you drove here today? Everybody raises their hand. I say, can you tell me what color car is parked two cars to the right of yours in the parking lot? And they look at each other like, where did they find this guy? (laughs) But at the same time, they have to admit they have no idea. So on Tuesday, I ask them that same senseless, useless, pointless question. They still don't know. By Wednesday at the earliest, Thursday at the latest, driving into the lot at the hotel with far more important things on their mind, a place in the brain called the hippocampus, which is where we store memories, will say to that person, that fool is going to ask you again about the color of the car, and you're forced to store an answer in short-term memory. <laughs> the brain cannot reject the question. So if you just ask a question repeatedly, the brain has to pay attention to it. Now, the trick is, going back to our initial conversation about fear, if you ask big questions, how am I going to lose all this weight by the end of the year? How am I going to find a breakthrough product? By the end of the month, the bigger the question, the more it triggers fear. And the way the brain was designed is that the more frightened you are, the less thought you have available to you. The cortex, the thinking part of the brain, shuts down. Mm -hmm. We've all experienced that, say, with test anxiety. 
the more afraid you are, the less you remember. Then you walk out of the test, and all of a sudden, the right answers come back to you because the amygdala is now quiet. Mm -hmm. So if you can ask a small, trivial question daily without any pressure or urgency behind it so the amygdala stays quiet, the brain begins its own Google search. Now, it's less efficient than Google, but the questions you're asking are more profound. Just to show you the power of this, the last numbers we have are actually about 10 years old now. Because let me back up. What Dr. Deming did is he simply asked each Toyota worker to ask themselves a question each day. And the question was, what small, trivial step could I take that may improve the process or product? Just ask the question. Mm -hmm. And again, because it was small, it wouldn't trigger fear. And because it was a question, the brain would be compelled in its own magical way to start popping out answers. And just to show you the power of this, I started to say in 2002, 2004, we had the numbers from Toyota and several other car companies. The average U.S. car company, General Motors, Chrysler, Ford, the average employee was making three suggestions every two years to their employer. <laughs> the average reward was over $400 per suggestion. The average Toyota worker was making in U.S., Asia, Canada, Europe, they were making over 200 suggestions per year. Average reward was less than $4. Wow. Now, Deming preached repeatedly that people needed to be paid fairly for their labors. If you're not doing that, all bets are off. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, he thought big rewards were a terrible idea. And all the research since then has confirmed that. Because if you think there's a big reward waiting for a big idea, what are you looking for? Of course, big ideas, mm -hmm. missing many small ones that may turn out to be big. And if I think there's a $400 reward and you're standing next to me on the assembly line, what are the chances that I'm going to say, look, I've got this idea I'm going to send up to management, but before I do that, what do you think? <laughs> chances I'm going to do that are pretty remote, whereas for 3 or $4, the chances are you're going to bounce it off the people along the assembly line. Toyota bragged to us in 2004 that they could use over 80% of the over 1 million suggestions they were getting from their workforce worldwide. Wow. And we asked them, what do you do with the 20%, the ones that are really kind of haywire? They said, those are the ones we like the best. Because if we're getting a really bad suggestion from somebody, we know we haven't trained them right. Mm -hmm. and we get to retrain them before they create a mess for us. So they make good use of the small bad suggestions they got as well. That's advanced. <laughs> so to go back to your question, so if there's something in life that you want, like you're not sure what you want to do for your next career or you're not sure what product or service needs to be what you're going to focus on, if you have the patience and kindness to ask that question once or twice a day without demanding an answer, again, so the amygdala stays quiet, the brain starts to pop out answers. Because all of us have had the experience where you're putting on your makeup, you're shaving, you're in the shower, you're driving to work, and you get a solution to a problem. How did that happen? Well, you started asking a question, and the brain in its own magical, mysterious way went about looking for answers and popped it out on its schedule, not ours. That's fantastic. That's interesting to me what you talk about with the contrast between the American car companies and Toyota and the volume of suggestions and the payout, the idea of small rewards I think is really interesting, both because, as you said, you're not likely to check it out with someone else if you might be losing right. out on $400. But there's also, it just feels so much less risky, and it's high volume, and people have access to the small things around them. 
everyone knows in their job at any one moment what bugs them. Uh-huh. You know, what takes like an extra click here or an extra five minutes here. Everyone knows the efficiencies because we have to kind of consciously ignore them every day. Yes. So I like that because to my mind, it's just so much easier and accessible and concrete and right in front of you than some of those big ideas. But exactly. is there anything else about small rewards? Because I can hear some people's ears perking up <laughs> as I say that. What is a good amount for a North American worker? What is an amount that actually makes sense? And how would an employer ask this question? You know, the answer is kind of mind-boggling to your listeners, and that is, the studies we have from Japan, where the suggestion plans are much more sophisticated and long-standing than ours, is that if you eliminate the rewards, you get more suggestions. Right. That's kind of mind-bending. But again, the caveat is people have to feel they're being financially compensated fairly for their labors. If that's not happening, then you're not going to get the answer. But what Kaizen does, once you build it into a culture, is that people come to work every day thinking, what could I do to improve the experience for the customer? Mm-hmm. Because again, the key to Kaizen isn't just small steps, but small steps that have to be in service to the customers. So a lot of times consumer magazines will tell you which potato chip owner or manufacturer is now giving you the same size bag of potato chips with fewer chips in it. <laughs> you can call that what you want, but it's not Kaizen because Kaizen is always, what can we do to improve the product and reduce the cost and increase the quality for the customer? Mm-hmm. So what happens in a Kaizen culture is you eliminate any resistance to change because people assume that every day they're looking for how they can improve something about the job. Now, go back to something you just said a few moments ago. What usually sparks Kaizen suggestions is people have some frustration, mm-hmm. like the receptionist. So people want to be proud of what they're doing, Deming Preach. People want to feel part of their organization. People want their job to be as efficient and without struggle as possible. So if they're looking at what's not working, thinking, what could I be doing or we could be doing that would improve the process, then you're going to get creativity on a daily basis. That, to me, is very exciting. Two other points that came to mind for me. One is that the Kaizen culture, that small step way of thinking, well, it's really talking about intrinsic motivation versus always relying on extrinsic motivation. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that intrinsic motivation for me, it certainly is in our culture here at Coach, is that you're living in at least a work environment, hopefully a home environment too, where it's focused on improving value. It's focused on making things better. It's creating new things. It doesn't have to be giant. It can be small. But that's a positive, growth-oriented, uplifting place at which to work. Exactly. And I don't know about you, but everyone I can imagine that I know of wants to be a part of that. Exactly. And what made Dr. Deming so outstanding and revolutionary in his time is he felt that an assembly worker standing on a line putting on a bolt on a tire had that same interest in having meaning and purpose and pride in their work as did the people working in high-tech companies. He actually had proof that that was the case. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly my value system or my way of looking at things is everyone has something to contribute. And one of the contexts that we set in the program is in terms of 10 times growth, we have this kind of analogy or metaphor about things bubbling up and innovations and improvements. And often they're, you know, if you're going towards 10 times, one times improvement over here, two times over here, five times over here, but it bubbles up from the bottom. 
<laughs> and they coalesce and combine together, and after a while, you've got a bubbling pot that's got a lot of 10 times innovations in it. Exactly. But it, yeah. it doesn't only come from the top down. One of the big opportunities, I think, in entrepreneurial companies is that there is more openness as opposed to a large, very structured, more corporate organization it's kind of almost expected. I know when I started at Coach, which was 1991, a long time ago, there was so much that was not in place. There was so much we didn't know. We made it up every day. And there was a lot of freedom. And now, even though we're substantially bigger, much bigger than 10 times bigger, I think there's still equally as much room for those bubbles and those innovations and those improvements. But I'm not sure that people coming in starting at work today have that same sense. But right. what, what you're saying is in a culture where if this is how you set things up for team members and even new ones, that this becomes normal, that people, if they're well-trained, have good ideas. And if they're not good ideas, you need to clearly train them better. I like Toyota's exactly. insight into that. Yeah. That, to me, is a recipe for a growing company. I would say it a little bit differently, but absolutely agreeing what you're saying, that Kaizen is really the only insurance you have against being destroyed. Oof. Because no matter what product or service you have, as we all know, at a certain point, it becomes irrelevant or technology leaps over it. So unless you're continually looking at how you can improve and enhance, there's no way you're going to be able to survive for very long. Mm -hmm. So, so you're, you're trying to create that culture so that people are continually thinking about what small step can we take to improve it. And again, as we said earlier, you don't know which small step is going to be revolutionary. There's a book that came out of Harvard called The Innovator's Dilemma, mm -hmm. which was a series of case studies looking at these hugely successful companies that essentially went bankrupt. And it was the same thing in every story, and that is they became so big and so successful that they were looking for what's the next big idea we can find that will give us big profits to satisfy our big shareholders and missed many small, tiny ideas that turned out to leapfrog over what they were doing. So the only solution they could come up with was either to create a Kaizen culture or just to set up kind of these little rogue organizations within the big organization that would continually look at how could we do something better or different. Just to give you one example, Pixar, the most extraordinary successful movie studio in history, mm -hmm. when they bring on new employees, they tell them from day one, there's got to be a way we can be doing things better, no matter how successful we've been. There's got to be ways to do things better. We want you to look, now that you're essentially looking at it from an outsider's point of view, and tell us how we can improve, as opposed to thinking they've got the answers. You have to swallow the Kool-Aid and join us. I love every second of that. <laughs> to me, it's such an entrepreneurial approach, as opposed to state and corporate and bureaucratic, and things have to stay the same. We have to control you. There's something kind of magically spontaneous. On a small way, it's not threatening, which is what makes it so great. So this, to me, is very energizing, I think, to help our constituents get them where they want to go. This is, yeah, this is so cool. Exactly right. Something else the research supports that you said earlier is there's just no way to predict in an organization who's going to come up with the breakthrough ideas. Mm -hmm. So that, again, as you said earlier, you really have to cultivate this culture of change and improvement throughout the entire organization. I also think it takes a lot of pressure off the people who created the company in the first place. Usually there's some risk-taking part of the entrepreneur, and that's why they were willing to jump out of the state and the trusted and the, you know, into something brand new where they had to experiment and kind of make it up as they went along. But after you've got the company established, or even as you're doing that, it's a big burden to carry to be the only one doing that. Again, what I really like about this is it's such an inclusive 
way of looking at things and that those innovations can and do and need to come from every single person and level within the organization. Exactly. Yep. Fantastic. So one of the things that you talk about, and I want to pull in the New York City example because everyone's familiar with that. Talk about small problems. I mean, that was a great example of how there were certainly some big changes, but what really transformed crime in New York City was looking at small problems. So can you tell that? Because I think to me, it's one of the ones that I always remember. Sure. There's several examples of social change taking place in small ways. I'll certainly give you that one, but I wanted to also talk about agriculture Great. and healthcare in the same sentence, if you can believe that. <laughs> but um, what happened in the crime situation is a um, policeman named William Bratton, who was at the time working for the Boston Police Department, and that police department was quite progressive, and they would bring in, for example, professors from the, all the universities around Boston just to lecture to the policemen about different aspects of social psychology. And one of them was called the broken windows phenomena, mm-hmm. where if you go into a rundown part of a city where there's abandoned buildings, if the kids or vandals or whoever break one pane of the glass, if you don't repair that pane, they'll come back and break the others. If you repair it magically and mysteriously, people tend to leave it alone. And so it kind of stuck in his mind. And then he was hired to run the transit police in New York City dealing with the underground, the uh, subways. Mm -hmm. And there was lots of crime in the subways, everything from urination to rape and other kinds of violent crimes. And he knew his predecessors had tried all the usual things police do to try to reduce crime with very little success. So he remembered the broken windows phenomenon and said, well, maybe we can just try to eliminate petty crime so that criminals know that somebody's paying attention to the quality of life for our customers. So they would arrest, for example, people who were jumping over the turnstiles trying to get their subway fare free. They would arrest people that were loitering too long or people who were urinating in public these very small crimes that diminish the quality of life for the people, but really had nothing to do with major crime. And much to their surprise and amazement, violent crime went down over half in the subways. When they saw that change, they hired him to run the police department above ground, and the same thing happened, and it's been repeated in many cities throughout the United States. So this small kind of incremental changes led to huge changes, One of my other favorite examples is modern agriculture, because right now in the U.S., as I'm sure you're aware, we're going through this huge upheaval trying to change the entire health care system for over 250 million people overnight. And we're running into all kinds of problems, both technical and stakeholders fighting. And if we go back to 1900, agriculture was in the same situation that health care is in the United States, where it's extremely expensive and enormously inefficient. In 1900, about half of your income would go to food. About half the population of the U.S. was working on farms. The crop yields were low. When you went to the grocery store, there was very limited and unpredictable qualities and quantities of food. And there was very little reason for farmers to take advantage of the new innovations in agriculture that were coming along because labor was cheap, land was cheap. They had very little incentive to make any changes because they were doing fine. Well, the Department of Agriculture in the U.S. sent one man to one town in the small part of Texas. He found a farmer that had 800 acres, asked the farmer if he'd turn over 70 acres just to these newfangled scientific methods that were available. At the end of the year, the farmer had $700 more than he had the year before. So he was sold 
the other farmers at breakfast heard the story and they began copying him. They sent another agricultural worker to Texas, another one to Louisiana, and one small step at a time, they revolutionized the agricultural system so we now spend a fraction of our income on food and 2% of the population works on farms. So when we have big problems, we think we need big solutions, but often small steps allow us to make changes without the huge disruptions and resistance on a societal level that we see when people try to change their weight or their relationship or their work situation overnight. So what would your prescription be for the health care crisis? Because I know some people are going to want to know your answer to that one. If I was in charge, what I would do is whatever system they want to come up with, because unfortunately, as you know, there's better systems all over the world, mm-hmm. including the one in Canada. So it wasn't like the United States had to invent anything if they just took the best of what was happening in Canada, Japan, and Germany, and other countries that were spending much less on their healthcare system and getting dramatically better results. If they just copied what they had, would be better. But the other answer within our framework of Kaizen, if they took, for example, one state or just took, say, 100,000 federal employees and worked out the kinks, worked out the technology, saw what worked and what didn't work, and then slowly began incrementally implementing it, people would actually be demanding it because it was working in one group of people. Why can't we have it? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the citizens would become stakeholders in a system that right now they're just being tossed back and forth in. That, to me, is a very entrepreneurial approach. I mean, when I first met Dan and Babs, and Babs is the person I work with most closely, and she was like, okay, let's experiment. So we've tested new things in the UK, for example, and I'm creating new stuff all the time. So it's like, okay, let's test it over here. (laughs) You've got that sense of me already. You know, let's test it over here and see how that works. And we have a tool called the Experience Transformer where we say, okay, what worked, what didn't, what would we do differently next time? And there's almost never an expectation that it has to be perfect. The first time, we even have one of our concepts, which is similar to the 80% approach, which is that don't have it be perfect, have it be 80%, then hand it off to the next person who can make the next small improvement, and vice versa, because all of those small changes by multitude of people is actually far more effective than one person trying to do it perfectly. So I'm kind of celebrating, as you're talking, I'm like, yes, that's the entrepreneurial way. So I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I want to ask you a personal question, if I may. What really incentivized you or what excited you about Kaizen and how do you use it in your life? I mean, I love the stories that you talk about how you coach people individually, which I know you have very limited capacity for, so don't everyone get all excited at once here. But what does it mean to you? There were several answers to that. One is, again, working in a medical clinic, training physicians in communication skills and counseling skills, I shared their frustration that we would see people if only they would change some of their life habits some of the medical problems that they were continually coming back with had to improve. And so, again, asking people to join a gym and on and on all those big steps was just a waste of time. In fact, just convince the patient you didn't know anything about their lives. So once I saw how powerful Kaizen could be in terms of, for example, asking somebody to exercise one minute a day, moving as fast as they can while they're watching one commercial, and then building on that, like with any habit, first people resist it, and then they tolerate it, and then they miss it if it stops. So we found people were developing these wonderful habits. The doctor was feeling better. The patients were getting results. And obviously, I was happier. Mm-hmm. On a more personal level, there were a couple 
ways I've used it. One is I used it the same way in terms of exercise for myself because one of the most amazing Kaizen studies has come out of the Mayo Clinic where they looked at a very fancy pedometers. Essentially, they were pedometers you wore. So they had very elaborate data on how much people moved. And they looked at people who were thin, fit, who never went to a gym versus those who were heavy. And one of the things they found is that the people who are thin and fit, again, without an elaborate exercise program, were simply moving more during the day. These were people who parked at the end of the store lot and walked further. These are people who, in a seminar, would get up and move and stand more than they would sit. These are people who paced in their office when they were on the phone. They just moved more during the day. They fidgeted when they were sitting in a meeting. And what they found is those small movements added up to 300 calories a day, which over the course of a year could lead to 30 to 40 pounds of weight loss in a year. Wow. And this study has been repeated. Not only has it been repeated, Shannon, but they find if you exercise for an hour this morning and came to work and sit for six, seven hours of the day, your chances of dying of heart disease are the same as somebody who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day. Yikes. We're simply not designed to sit. We're hunter-gatherers in terms of our biology. We're supposed to be moving. So just getting up and standing, because I'm not suggesting people need to go on treadmills all day, but just getting up and moving from time to time so that you're speeding up the metabolism is enough to give you this kind of weight loss. So I actually tried it myself because, again, I'm like many of the people I'm describing, my days are long. I would simply move more during the day on the escalator. I'd move instead of standing still in the airport waiting to board the plane. I'd be lifting my luggage just to move the muscles in my arms. I would stand rather than sit waiting to board. So these small moments I was able to lose, as they said, 30 to 40 pounds in a year. Now, one more example of my personal use of Kaizen. Once I got the contract for the, the book, I went into overwhelm. I got scared because not only is it, I'm sure you appreciate it, it's a huge undertaking, but I don't particularly like to write. <laughs> so I thought, well, maybe I'll try Kaizen, see if this stuff works. <laughs> so I decided, all right, I'm going to write one minute a day. That's it, one minute. If I write more, that's fine, but I'm only committed to one minute a day. And for two or three weeks, that's all I did. But what I found, and that's what Kaizen illustrates, is after a while, I forgot to stop. <laughs> if I give you one more example, years ago, before I ever met Dr. Deming, because I had the privilege of spending a week with him, but before I ever met him, there was a world-famous pain expert at UCLA giving a two-night talk for people with cancer pain. At the end of the first night, he said to this group of patients, I'd like you all to go home and meditate for one minute. Well, I thought that was one of the strangest things I ever heard, so I waited for the audience to leave, went up to him and said, Professor, why are you asking these people to meditate for one minute? It's not enough to do anybody any good. He patiently said to me, asked me, how old is meditation? I said, thousands of years old. He said, correct. There's a good chance everybody in this room has heard of meditation before tonight. Those who like the idea have already found a book or a teacher and are meditating for the rest of the people in this room, meditation is the worst idea they ever heard of. I'd rather they go home and meditate for one minute than not meditate for 30. They may discover they like it. They may forget to stop, which is exactly what the research argues and what happened to me when I started to write the book. The whole thing about forgetting to stop is A, funny, and B, so true. Some of the examples, I'm going to ask you for some more in just a moment, but it's like floss one tooth. Uh-huh. Which just, <laughs> if I can get my kids to do that, this would be a good place to start. 
people laugh at it's ridiculous, isn't it? it? It is. But if you can do it at the end of a month, what do you have besides one clean tooth? You have a habit of picking up that silly string. And I think that's what people really need to appreciate. And something even, let's just take flossing your teeth, it doesn't involve one step. There's taking time, making sure you've got the dental floss, pulling it out of the drawer, getting the string, doing the teeth, rinsing all the other stuff, and even just breaking it down into smaller pieces and do it, doing a little bit of it and getting that, as you said, into the track of your brain that after a while, it's pretty easy to get going. Right. That's actually a habit I've worked on before and after I've talked to you. And it was one of those things where even those nights where I'm way past my bedtime, I'm really tired, I want to go to sleep, and I'm thinking about skipping it. But like, no, 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 just make sure I do a couple of teeth. And then guess what? Once I'm there, I do the whole thing. Right. If I can just talk myself into a little bit, then the rest of it is actually habit. And all those things that are habits are things we don't have to think about. It's changing from old habits to new habits, and we like to talk about unsuccessful or successful habits rather than good or bad. That's how you do it. You do a really small little bit first until it becomes an unconscious competence, to use that term. Sure, exactly. I could talk to you all day, but I have a couple more things I want to grab from you before we wrap up. This is very educational, by the way. I love it. One of the things that you talk about that I want to make sure people don't miss is the importance of early warning signs and blind spots. And I thought that was a very insightful part of the book, that sometimes we know better, but we ignore the small warning signs. So can you talk about that? Sure. This was a Kaizen part of the research we discovered when I read a book called Managing the Unexpected by a man named Carl Weick, W-E-I-C-K. And the book is a summary of 15 years of research on what they called high-reliability organizations. These were places like aircraft carriers, nuclear power plants, emergency departments, places where you're trying to reduce human error to zero. Mm -hmm. And basically, the whole 15 years boiled down to two things. One, as managers, as leaders, as entrepreneurs, if you have people working for you, have you made it safe for them to bring their mistakes or their concerns or their fears to you so that you can keep them from making mistakes before they go down a path that's not going to work? But the second thing is they looked for very small mistakes and tried to correct them while they're trivial. Mm. Because if you can correct them when they're small, they don't get to be big. Yes. And that was the sum of his whole book. And what we found is that so many of the big disasters that we've experienced in the last several years, there were all these small warnings before the problem took place. The one in in the Gulf of Mexico, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, It took place in 2010. When we went back and looked at some of the studies, there were over 356 small spills, in quotes, between 2001 and 2007 on that platform, but they were so small and inconsequential, nobody stopped to look to see how important that they were. Another example that I just find fascinating Many of your listeners may know about the group Van Halen, the rock group. (laughs) I'm sure they do. And the person who started, David Lee Roth, his policy was, and it was in the contract, when they went to a venue that there had to be a bowl of M&Ms backstage, but there could be no brown M&Ms. Otherwise, the concert was off and the band would keep the money. Now, that (laughs) sounds like the demands of a self-absorbed, narcissistic, petty rock star. But it turned out it was really quite a different process. And that is, he was going into much smaller venues than most people would. These weren't huge cities like Toronto. They were going into smaller cities. 
they'd pull up with 18 trucks where most of these rock groups had only three. The programs were very highly technical, and there was lots of ways that things could go wrong. And if he went backstage and saw a brown M&M in the bowl, they would now go back and check everything else they did because they figured if they couldn't get the M&Ms right, they weren't going to get the more complicated things right. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> and to give you a more painful example, the Columbia disaster, the space shuttle that took off and destroyed, the reason why they believe it blew up was that a piece of foam came off the wing when it was on takeoff. Well, that foam had come off the wings on seven previous shuttles. Now, the first time it happened, they were a little concerned, but it didn't seem to cause any problems. Second time, they were still a little bit concerned, but after all, the first time, there was no problem. So by the seventh time, they figured this was normal, and of course, they ran out of luck. Mm -hmm. There's a way of explaining this that I talk about in terms of our personal lives. If you think back to some big mistake you made in your life, some mistake you would have given anything not to have made, if you think back over that, let me tell you a story that will seem like it's 100 miles away, and that is when Dr. Deming and Toyota decided they were going to rebuild, they decided the assembly line was never going to be the same again because up till then, everybody built cars the way Henry Ford did, and that is it went down the assembly line. You're putting on the right tire. I'm putting on the back tire, and at the end of the assembly line, you know, a dozen quality control people went over the car, and some of us with gray hair are old enough to remember it didn't matter how much you paid for a car you still took it back a month later with a list of things that had to be fixed. Well, Deming said, never again. They put a cord at each step of the assembly line. You're putting on the right front tire. You notice scratches on the fender. You pull the cord, stops the assembly line. Down comes the supplier. Up comes the engineer, and they try to fix it right there. You start up the assembly line. I'm putting on the right back tire. I see the leather seems to be fading, and the car hasn't even left the line yet. I pull the cord. Same thing. Everybody thought it was ridiculous. How can you mass manufacture a product when you're stopping it every few feet to fix it? Well, it turned out to be the most efficient way to build cars, to correct these small mistakes as quickly as you could. Now, just to go back to what I was saying before, think back to that big mistake you made in your life, the one you would have given anything to have avoided. Were there not small little signs along the way that things weren't going exactly the way we hoped? We were so much in a hurry to get to the end result, the relationship, the business partnership, whatever it was, that we were ignoring these small signs that things weren't exactly what we were wanting or needing. That is so true. I mean, I have those conversations. People are in partnerships, and I thought of relationships as the first thing when you were uh -huh. talking about sure. some situation exactly. you wish you hadn't gotten into. I'm like, oh, I should have known better. Yep, and that we had small signs that there were red flags, but we were too much in a hurry to get the goal. Yeah, and the other thing is, just to tie in what you were talking earlier, everything about Kaizen is to improve, for example, in business, the client experience. Yes. It's always to make things better. So there's a standard implied in that. And I think that's one of the things that I know I'm always reminding people of, is that you have standards, and when you ignore or you don't give enough weight to the fact that someone's not living up to your standards or resisting your standards or rejecting them, that is a giant clue to pay attention to. And if you don't pay attention to it now, there will be a big disaster down the road yes. that you will really resist having to pay for <laughs> because yes. you should have known better. So I could not agree more. If I could just give you one more example from business, this is a quote from Fortune magazine. Quote, it's easy to believe that Jeff Bezos is one of the great innovators, but that's not exactly the case. His rise into Fortune 500 actually has little to do with innovation and more to do with iteration. 
If anything, Amazon demonstrates how a cutting-edge Internet company of all things can succeed slowly. The trick is to take a million tiny steps and learn quickly from your missteps, unquote. Mm. That is a fabulous way to wrap up. Awesome. I'm going to ask you one little amuse-bouche, just one little thing. What is your number one way for someone who wants to change to have better health? What is, what's your favorite health tip in terms of a small step? Can I give two? Yes, you may. All right. <laughs> the first one, because exercise is so important for almost any kind of health improvement, is to either be exercising one minute a day, again, moving in place as fast as you can, in front of the TV or whatever, or to do those small things during the day, get up and stretch, move around your office, pace, park further away, those kinds of small steps so that you're trying to recover the habit of, of movement. If you think about it, what was our favorite part of school when we were a kid? Recess. Recess. We couldn't wait to get out and move our bodies. Now we pay people large sums of money for the privilege. <laughs> and not because we really need the fancy equipment, but because we've lost that ability to find pleasure in movement. So if I can recover that just by stretching or getting up and moving around a little bit or taking a walk if I can for two minutes, then the body will recover that habit. So that's one. And the other is something you mentioned earlier, and that's mind sculpture. If you close your eyes and, for example, see the plate of food with you know a huge helping like you get in most restaurants and imagine, just picture yourself looking down at the plate slowly eating a third of it and then giving it to the waiter to wrap up the rest of the and just picture that and if you do that again like an advertisement 15 30 seconds a day with enough repetition the brain gets the idea ah that's what she wants me to do <laughs> and you can develop portion control without all the kinds of willpower and self-control and discipline that most of us don't have by the end of the day Yes, which is, there's a whole book, Willpower, that talks about that very eloquently. Yes. The other suggestion that I started doing after our conversation and based on the book is that, for instance, a candy bar. So it's 4 o'clock, you're starving, you're going to have a candy bar. You throw away the first bite, yes. not the last one. No, it's way <laughs> too hard to throw the last one away. And again, you're just trying to train the brain the way you would a pet. And you do it through repetition. There's no other way for the brain to learn. And children. Throwing away the first bite of everything, the brain gets the idea, ah, that's the new game. Yes, which I think is so powerful. And, you know, especially French fries or anything like that, you just take some away and throw them out first, not last, which I think is a fairly profound concept. (laughs) The other thing, just to close out, so you are in the midst of doing, which I think is very exciting, can't call an edit, a new edition of One Small Step. Yes. Um, so please tell people about that and how they can get in touch with you or how they can learn more because you do also do a lot of courses and workshops. How can people reach out to you? The website, which has several videos and other information, is scienceofexcellence.com. Great. And there's also contact information there. There's links to the second book that came out on Kaizen, which is focused on business. But to go back to your question, the book's being reprinted in paperback, and we've updated some of the examples and exercises, and there's a preface, a brand-new chapter, which talks about some of the research I mentioned, like the Mayo Clinic studies that came out after the book was printed in 2004. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So again, I could keep this going for a long time, but I do need to close it out. So Bob, thank you so much, because I think what you've shared with us is, first of all, a new way of thinking, and most precious, is really some very practical applications of that. And the whole idea about how to not trigger the fear response in the brain, how to tiptoe past the amygdala, 
and how to ask small questions, take small actions, have small improvements that actually produce a very large result in ways that larger, more scarier innovations or actions would prevent us from being successful. And since that's really the track that we're all on, everyone who's listening, to me, this is, as I said earlier, the secret formula. So I just want to express my very deep appreciation for A, getting to know you because you're a complete delight. And I love, you're welcome, and all the wisdom that you have to share. And I'm looking forward to exploring more on your website, and I can't wait to see the new edition. So congratulations, and I'm excited to see it. Thank you. It's a privilege talking with you. Great. Thank you so much, Bob. Sure.